Okay, brace yourselves. This is a hard one today. It is Genesis 41. We jump three times. Um, I had to write him down on my arm. It's going to be crazy. I'll try to help you, so please follow along. I'm now encouraged to, to do this. I think I got this one. All right. Genesis 41, starting with verse 1. At least that's the easy part. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they, f- and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and, I can't get over that. and Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offense offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the banker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can't interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now we jump down to, I think it's 25. Yes, we jump down to 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears, blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land, by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years." And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now we jump down to 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Jump to 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread, 
When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and, st- and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. All right. Hey, am I on? Am I? Did I break it? Am I good? Can you hear me? All right. How's everybody doing? Hey, Jordan, you did it. Good job. That was long. Um, I, I guess the main point we can take from today is that plump and fat is beautiful. Skinny is... <laughs> Class is missed. Um, so, um, all right. Oh, so first things first here. Uh, all right. First things first. Ladies and gentlemen, Pilgrim Foster Phillips. All right. So, I just wanted to, I just wanted to brag, really. Check it out. Um, okay, so, yeah, he's, he's doing fine. He's keeping us up all night, and he's healthy. Um, hasn't let us sleep in about three weeks now, so we're good. We're good to go. Um, so today we are taking, here, I'll get that off of there so you can pay attention to me. Um, today we are taking a journey through this story. Perhaps you've also seen this story uh, in your favorite Disney genre. Um, it's been, it's been made into movies. It's all kinds of stuff. Uh, this, is, this is a childhood favorite of, of everyone who grew up in the church. Um, even if you didn't grow up in the church, people usually know this story. It's, it's Joseph's rise to power. He, the, the, the Pharaoh has some dreams that he can't interpret. We all know Joseph is pretty good at interpreting dreams. And somebody remembers this and, and calls him out to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. He interprets the dream and he tells him what to do with that information. And the Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything. And saves all of Egypt and the world, and the peasants rejoice. Um, so that's the story we're, we're, we're teaching from today. I wanted, to, I wanted to read that first and then give you that quick rundown because we're going to venture into the spiritual side of this whole thing. Um, I, I could talk about several different things that, that are obvious um, to talk about, um, namely what, knowing, knowing how to listen to God and tell others, mainly um, maybe knowing how to have wisdom and not just knowledge and, 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 and being smart and working hard, knowing what to do. And so all the ways that, that pastors tend to teach about these things. We're going to go totally different direction, like we usually do. Um, some of this stuff this morning I'm going to talk about is um, stuff that, if, that I know a lot of you weren't here at the beginning of Genesis because we're about like twice as big as we were. Um, and so a lot of you missed the beginning of Genesis and you missed a lot of the teachings that I did on ancient Jewish writings and how they wrote and why they wrote and what they were doing when they were writing. Um, they weren't just writing history. They were interpreting history to tell the story of God. And so there's a lot of that actually in this story. Um, and so I'm going to try to get as deep as I can into this because I, I think it's important to have context. So let's pray and let's ask God to um, teach us something new this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I ask that you would be with me this morning as I teach. Um, allow me to be clear-headed. Remember the things that I've studied. Um, give us your grace um, in the form of not just knowledge, but wisdom this morning. Help us n- to know what to do with the things that we are reading, the things that we are studying. We love you, Father. Um, thank you for, for preserving these ancient writings through, um, 
possibly a thousand years of oral tradition and then, and, then, and then down through the writings of the ages and, and being translated in different languages. And now in almost every language on the planet, this, these stories are in. And so it's an incredible thing that has been done, the fact that you have ordained these stories to be kept so that we can know about you, so that we could sit here this very morning and, and learn about you. And we thank you for that. Let us take it seriously. We love you, Father. Build us up this morning. In your name. Amen. So, um, this is Joseph's rise to power. Like I said, this is how he attained um, exactly what he had originally dreamed. When he was a child, about, um, I believe he had said he was 14 years old, he had a dream that he would um, one day um, be a leader and the people, his family mainly, would be bowing down to him. And so, these dreams weren't well accepted by the people around him, and they sold him into slavery. Um, Last time we checked in with Joseph here, it had been about, um, I think about 15 years, that's what scholars tell us, about 15 years had gone by before he was uh, interpreting the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. And so now we get to this passage, um, chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So we have two more years. Um, He's been in jail a long time. He did nothing wrong. He never sinned against um, the people around him against his family. He never sinned against um, the, the man he was working for, Potiphar. He never sinned against the jailers. He, he was a good man and has suffered a very long time um, despite the fact that he was good. So one of the interesting things about Joseph that, that, uh, that I love is when he interprets this dream of Pharaoh's, he doesn't just say, well, here's what this means. He doesn't just say what it means. He also has not that, that knowing what it means is knowledge. A lot of Christians today have knowledge. We know the scriptures. We, um, we can point out different passages. And we can say what they mean. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom, uh, Paul used the word epigenosis. It's, it's, it's something that is just um, so ingrained in you that you can't not do it. It, it becomes sort of instinct, knowing the right thing to do with the information that you are given. When you, when you read something, you know not just what it means, but what that means for you in your life, how it should change your life, how you should apply it to different aspects of your life. And it's something that is much more valuable than anything else. We learned this from, from uh, King Solomon himself. Um, knowing what to do with the information at hand is very, very important. Um, and I want us to, to know not just the story. We've all heard this story. I want to know um, context. I want to know how we apply it in this modern, postmodern culture. I want to know lots of things. Um, so, yeah, I wrote wisdom and knowledge up here just to show you the difference. Um, but there are several questions you should be asking uh, when you read passages like this. Um, one of them is, is, is there a bigger meaning to these dreams? I would argue that there absolutely is. If you were paying attention at the beginning of Genesis, you saw different things on how um, the ancient Jewish people used different symbols in their writing um, to argue for different aspects of God. Um, You need to ask the question, is there something that can be applied from this story to our lives in this modern world? I would argue there absolutely is things from this story that we can apply to our world. Yes, there is something we can apply from the story of a cow, a big cow being eaten by a little cow into our very lives. And we will see this morning. Magic is coming. Um... Is the gospel in this story? Absolutely, the gospel is actually in this story. The gospel is littered all through the Old Testament. Um, 
And that's mainly what we do here is we open the scriptures and we point to Jesus. He is here, he is here, he is here. And he's in this story today. Um, and so um, let's start looking at, at Pharaoh's dream here. I, 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 want to, uh, I want to read a passage of it, a part of it first, and then, and then talk a little bit about it. Um, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of, the, out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So he dreams of fat cows and fat stock being devoured by skinny cows and skinny stock. And he wakes up like, ah, he's had the worst, most terrifying dream. Um, and so he's really confused by, by what he just dreamed. And so he calls up all of his um, dream interpreters and none of them can do the job. Um, now, if you were an ancient reader to this story, an ancient listener, um, I have argued over and over and over that um, this book, the book of Genesis, the first five books, the Pentateuch, were compiled. Um, first, they were carried in oral tradition, and then when they were um, in exile in Babylon, these things were compiled for specific reasons to preserve their future because they, they thought they were being annihilated. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to point to this, and I've already did it all, so if you want to go back to the beginning of Genesis and listen to these things, I'm going to lay it all out for you. Um, the audience being in exile in Israel, you need, you need to read these books from, from always from the position of the audience. When you're reading a New Testament book, um, if you're reading a book, uh, if, you're in the living in, you need, if you're reading the book of Corinthians, you need to understand the history and the culture of Corinth so that you can understand what exactly Paul is writing to you. Um, and so this is sort of the same thing. Um, and in ancient Jewish writings, there's all kinds of patterns that, that you can see in these ancient writings that you would see over and over and over again that they would write into these ancient writings. Um, for instance, I've talked about this before. I'm going to do a little review. The number 40 is used in Jewish scriptures over and over and over and over again. And every time it is used, it has a very similar use. It is a time of waiting and testing before God moves and changes something and does something huge. Um, we have, it's the length of the time in the flood. Imagine Moses, uh, Noah and his family sitting on this boat for 40 days, 40 nights, waiting for God to do something. Um, the time Moses spent on Sinai and the people at the base of the mountain being tested, sitting around saying, what are we doing here? Where did he, Moses died on top of the mountain. Um, the amount of time the spies were in Canaan, the amount of days that Goliath taunted the nation and they didn't know what to do. And he's just there taunting them and taunting them and they don't know how to react and respond. Um, and then God does something by sending them David. Um, it's the time of Jesus fasting. It's the time of Elisha's journey um, to Horeb and Sinai. The number 40 is a very important number to the ancient Jewish people. Um, and when they wrote it into their ancient texts, they weren't just writing history. They were writing theology. They were giving you reasons why God was doing what God was doing. And so they would know that there's, a, there's some hope coming in this, because God is about to move. Um, and so, likewise, the number seven in scriptures is, there we go, the number, huh, I got it, it's coming. The number seven in Jewish scriptures is used in sort of a similar way, but has a different meaning. Um, we keep the seventh day holy. We let the land uh, rest every seventh year. We have a seventh, seven-day liturgical week. All of creation is built in seven days. Um, 
The number seven in ancient um, Hebrew is very similar. The seven, number seven in ancient Hebrew is the word Shiva, which is very close, to, very similar to the word Shaba, which is um, the word for fulfillment, um, commitment, um, completion, um, sort of has a, uh, the idea of shalom, of peace, of things being as they should be. So when this word is used, it's, it's very, very important that people would know this has to do with God saying he's going to do something. This has to do with some sort of prophecy, some sort of promise that God is going to fulfill something, which is why we see it in Pharaoh's dream. It's exactly why we see it in Pharaoh's dream. Um, and so the question is, where did this number come from? Why did, did they just arbitrarily choose a number seven? Why didn't they just choose a number four? Why um, did God create the world in seven days, according to the Jewish text? Why didn't they, why didn't they write that? Well, I mean, couldn't you do it in one day? Why didn't he just do it in one day? That would wow everybody even more. Why, why in ancient books, um, is this number used specifically? Um, why didn't God do it differently? And, and, that's, and when you ask that question, um, you have to dive into the culture to see, well, did this number mean anything to anyone else? By using this number, would it mean something to other people? Um, where did this number come from? I'm so glad you just asked. Um, so, um, oh, again, I keep missing my little slides here. Um, so I'm going to introduce you to uh, a guy here, um, very old man. His name is Gudia of Lagash. Um, he had a temple. Um, he, okay, so this was one of, the, one of the kings of ancient Sumeria, which became Babylon, which was where the Israelites were being held captive. So in the area where the listeners of this book, the, the, the first hearers of, 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 of this book being read out loud in the, cent- in the city center, all the Israelites gathered around. They were in the middle of a city that descended from this king. Um, this king had a temple built to himself. He went up on the top of a mountain and he declared, I am a god. He declared that he's a god. He thinks he's Kanye West. And he declared that he's a god. First thing that pops in my head. And after he declares he's a god, he decides to build himself a temple. In ancient times, when you built a temple, you built it in seven days. I'm not sure exactly where this comes from, but it's a very ancient idea. And so Gudea, he had a temple built in seven days, and the dedication of this temple afterwards also took seven days. This right here is um, an Ugaritic culture. Um, it's, it's the god Baal, or Baal, however you want to say it. Um, I'm American, so I'm going to say Baal. His name's Baal. Um, so this guy also had a temple built, um, and his temple is built again over seven days, after he defeats the god Yam, and uh, the building of that temple is followed by, this, by a day of rest. And there are countless, countless other references to ancient gods building their temples centered around the number seven. And so, if God is going to command his people to build a temple, something that the other people around are going to see as something that a god is doing, I mean, Gudea pronounced himself to be a god. Um, as the legend goes, this probably didn't ever actually happen, but it's the story they told. Um, Baal built a temple in seven days. And so God commands them and says, you're going to build a temple. According to the scriptures, the temple took seven years to build, was dedicated in the seventh month during the seventh day Feast of the Tabernacles. Dedicated, the dedication took place over seven days, followed by a seven-day festival of celebration. Uh, and then the altar in Second Chronicles gets its own seven-day dedication. They are overdoing this. They are saying, you have no idea what we are building. We are building something 
really powerful, really important for a God who is huge and is mighty. And, and, and then you start to realize, you get to the beginning of Genesis and, and imagine all the Israelites again sitting around and, and the priests and the scribes stand up and I'm going to tell you the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was created in seven days. What would they hear? They would hear that the earth is owned by somebody. The earth is a temple. It's as if God wants to be with us. A couple thousand years later, God would call himself Emmanuel, God with us, and he would walk among us. The earth is God's temple, everything in it. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it is the Lord's. It was a huge story. And, and by the way, the Israelites were the only people to tell the creation story with seven days. The only people. Everyone else told it in different numbers. They were it that told this. They were telling you, listen, the earth is God's. The earth belongs to Yahweh. He doesn't just rule over a certain nation, a certain town, a certain country. He rules over the entire world. He is in control of everything. He is here walking amongst us. And that's what they're saying. So let's get back to our cows and corn. Um, The number seven is scattered throughout Pharaoh's dream. So first off, he's telling you, I'm about to do something. This has the number seven. It's, it's got commitment. It's got fulfillment. It's, it's God's about to act. And the question you have to ask is, is there an overarching narrative in this dream that we can see in the nature of God? There absolutely is. And when you ask these kinds of questions, you're doing what the ancient Jewish people have done for centuries, sitting in the temple regularly and debating the meaning of scriptures. It's very important that we do this in our house churches, in our Sunday gatherings, um, when we're going out to dinner all the time, talking about God and what God is doing and the meaning of scriptures. Um, And so what is the overarching narrative about? Well, let's start reading in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Again, the number seven, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. It's, It's the idea of commitment. He is going to fulfill something. Um, the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven, seven years, and the dreams are one, and the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He is about to do something. That's why we have the number seven buried in here. Um, and so... God is about to do something. And let's read a little farther. Let's go to verse uh, 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh uh, for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through famine. Um, And so he tells them, well, here's what we need to do. In response to this, the dream tells us that there are weak cows that will need to eat the fat cows, and and that's how they will live. So here's what we're going to do. And he tells them, and so let's read how it actually turns out. During these seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, just like he said it would. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. And he put every city, um, he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased, it's, until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. 
So he stores up grain so high that it can't be measured, treasures and riches and enough, enough food to feed so many people that it can't even be counted. Um, and then let's read a, a little farther here. Um, and all the earth came to Egypt to, to Joseph. Oh, wait, did I skip something? Okay, the seven years of plenty occurred in the land, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As he had said, there was famine in all the lands. Um, in the land of Egypt, there was bread. I love that symbolism, by the way, the bread. Um, and, and when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the earth. So, what we have here is a story of the salvation of the entire world. Did you catch? It's not just Egypt. Did you catch the end of it? All the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain. And, and a couple times that throws in there bread. All of the earth needs the bread that Joseph has there. Now we've talked in detail over and over again about how Joseph is the Christ figure in this story. Um, he is um, an alien in a land he did not grow up in. He is the only one in this place, in this entire nation of Egypt, that knows Yahweh and knows how to connect to Yahweh, and he's doing his best to talk to people about God. Um, um, he is accused of crimes that he did not commit. He is accused of sins, just like Jesus, that, that he did not commit. He, he lived righteous and perfect and still was punished and thrown in the depths for it. Joseph is the Christ figure in this, and so we see his rise to power here, and he ends up saving the entire world. Now, um, the point of this entire thing, seven cows, seven stalks, seven years spoken of, you see, this is all about salvation. This is about bringing salvation to the entire world. Um, And if you pay attention to what's actually happening here, in these dreams that Pharaoh has, seven cows, big, plump, beautiful, good cows. And they are, they are killed and consumed so that the scrawny, skinny, the bad cows can live. Seven good, strong ears of corn consumed so that the, the weak and the poor ears of corn that should just be thrown out can live. Are you beginning to see what this is about? This is about Jesus. This is a finger pointing directly to Jesus. There would be someone who would come in his death. He would be good and mighty and strong and powerful and his death would bring about the salvation of the entire world. This is not just some history story. This is theology that is being told here. And this is a story that that the Israelites sitting in Babylon would be very used to hearing. I mean, every single week before they were exiled to Babylon, they would take a good perfect lamb and they would take it to the temple and it would be sacrificed why to cover the sins of the people who were filthy and dirty and did not deserve them so that they could live and be saved um the stories they told about creation you have adam and eve um trying to hide their nakedness with their own works and they couldn't do it making things with their hands and god looks at them and says that'll never do and what does god do he takes an animal and he kills it and covers them um through the death of the perfect one. And the animals weren't, anything that, weren't the ones that did anything wrong. Over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, you see the death of, of the perfect and the good and the strong providing so that the weak and the poor can live. Um, the death of the Passover lamb when the, when the Israelites were in Egypt set them free and saved them. 
And a thousand years later, there would be a man named Jesus, and the entire world would be saved by his sacrifice, and he was perfect, and he did not deserve to die, and he was strong, and he was mighty, and he, was, he came to serve, and his death is what ended up saving the entire world. There's, these stories, these ancient stories are not just stories. They're not just, we can't just use knowledge, we have to use wisdom. Is there meaning behind these stories? Yes, there is. The story of Jesus has been told for thousands of years, even before his coming. People have always talked about the only way things can be saved is the Messiah would come. And somehow he will save us. They didn't foresee necessarily how it would happen. But once it happened, they look back and they say, he's been telling us this the entire time. Now, this idea, the death of the good for the life of the bad, is the center of the Christian story. Um... We, every single, there's, there's several sacraments um, that Christians have always taken part in. Um, there's um, confession, there's baptism, there's matrimony, which is, which is actually different than marriage, by the way. Matrimony is, is where two people bind themselves together, and, and it looks like marriage, but it's different because it tells the story of Jesus. Both sides are forgiving and loving and serving. Um, it's, much, it's much different. Um, and then another one of them is, is, is communion. If you grew up maybe in the Catholic tradition or, the, or Greek Orthodox or whatever, then you've heard this word, the Eucharist. Um, the Eucharist is what it was called for a long, long time. At some point we started calling it the um, communion. And if you take the word Eucharist and you separate it, you see the meaning of it. You means good, and then charis is the word gift. Uh, it's also the word we use for grace. It's the good gift. It is... The thing, the last thing that Jesus did before he was taken away and his body was broken and his blood was poured out for all of us. It was the fulfillment of the ancient stories, right even to Pharaoh's dream, that the good and the strong and the mighty would die so that the weak and the poor could live. This is God's way of justice. This is how God set things right. And so in the church... There are, there's thousands of ways that people can go in the church. There's thousands of things, forces that are pushing us different ways. There's thousands of um, ways that people act in the church and that they argue that we should be doing. There's, there's, um, there's church fights over social policies. There's church fights over um, things like baptism. Um, Christians are really good at arguing and fighting. That's what we have always done. Um, but, but the interesting thing is, when you take a piece of bread and you break it in, in, in the presence of other believers, and you break that bread, um, and then you take, you take the glass, and you pour the wine into the glass, it gets the Christian's attention because it is the symbol of Christianity. Body broken, blood spilled. It's the good gift. And so in all the things that separate us and all the things that we argue and fight about, when somebody gets out the bread and they say, look, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ spilled out for you and for me, for all of us. What do Christians do? How do they respond? We all line up and we all take communion. That's what we do. I grew up in a, in a church that, that we used to take it once a month. A little later, I went to a Grace Brethren Church where they did it once a year. So when we started Watermark, I wanted to take it every single week because I fully believe that the Eucharist, that communion, that the Lord's Supper 
is the only thing that can fix our world. It's the only thing that can heal the entire world. Have you turned on the news lately? Have you seen what is going on? Have you seen the anger and the fighting and the killing and the murder? It looks like things are spinning out of control. I, I would argue... And, and I mean, you listen to all these different sides. Here's how we should fix it. Here's how we should fix it. We should, um, we should talk to them. We should bomb them. We should, um, I just all these different people throwing out all these different answers. I would argue if you really want to fix everything, this is what it's going to take. It's going to take the Eucharist. It's going to take the broken body of Christ and the spilled blood of Christ. And, and this is the message. Um, the rich for the poor. The strong for the weak. The mighty for the lowly the smart for the unintelligent and the ignorant, the, all of that. When we realize what Jesus did for us, it should cause us to change our actions because most Christians are just standing around as if, as if they have a bucket and they're, they're catching just everything God is pouring down. We, we think, so God died for me so that I could receive this and this and this and this. And it ends there for some reason. And we never quite realize that what this means. This means we have to respond. How many times, I mean, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, did he not? That means we ourselves actually have to respond. We have to do something. We have to pour ourselves out. And so Jesus was poured out for you so that you could find salvation. And this is... The response that we are supposed to have is to pour ourselves out for others. Paul understood this. Paul got this. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We weren't created to just receive the good gift from God. We were created to give the good gift, to let it, the grace fall on us and pour out of our hands onto the people around us and to have our own lives poured out for those around us poured out. This is the only way that our city can be healed. This is the only way that our our families and our marriages can be healed is when we say, this is not about me anymore. I have only given myself pain and anguish and sorrow and and, and we humans are the ones that really screwed up this world so perhaps we need to try what, what someone else is offering. Throughout the years there's been all kinds of Christians who have understood this. Paul the Apostle and the rest of the Apostles all died terrible deaths. We, we can't find a single letter of theirs that writes about, I regret everything that I, would do, that I was doing and I wish I could just have my life back. I don't, I don't see a single page that has been preserved that has said that. All of them understood what Jesus did for them and they responded by doing it for others. Each one of them had their, their, their lives broken and poured out for others. You have throughout history all kinds of people, even even. The first people that the apostles ordained, like Polycarp, died a terrible martyr's death. Um, and then you have others um, in our recent history, people, even people like Mother Teresa, spent her entire life living in an orphanage serving people who could not pay her back for what she was doing. Terrible, terribly hard life. And she writes about this and says how difficult it was. But she realized that what God had done for her meant that she had to respond by pouring her own life out. We have even people like Martin Luther King who have stood up for what he saw as injustices. And he saw these injustices and said, I'm going to do everything I can, even if I suffer, even if I die, to pour myself out to cover the injustices. 
to fix them, to make them right. And the whole time he's preaching the gospel. And then we have, um, you know, we had the Christian abolitionists who saw what slavery was doing to human beings. We have um, Reverend Elijah Lovejoy who, who suffered and died terribly while he was trying to um, abolish slavery. There has always been a response of Christians throughout history that has been the right response that I see something that needs to change and I am willing to give of myself and to pour, it, pour myself out so that these things can be fixed. And this story is not a new story that began with Jesus. It went back a long time. Even Pharaoh dreamed about it. In Genesis chapter 3, we see it happening so that Adam and Eve could be covered up. This has been always the story. The people that are close to God need to pour themselves out so that other people can know him and other people can, can, can just find some peace and some mercy, some justice, even if we can't totally fix it. Even if we can't. Philippians chapter 2, verse seven, 17, Paul lays this out. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon a, upon a sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. There's another letter that he wrote. It was one of the last things that he wrote to a, man named, um, a guy named Timothy that he served uh, that, and, and that served in a, in a church. He was the pastor of a church. And he writes to Timothy and, and he says this. Um, he knows that he's about to die, by the way, but he doesn't call it dying. He doesn't say, I'm about to be killed. He says, um, I'm about to finish being poured out here. This is what he says. He says, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He says, oh, I'm not getting, I'm not going to be killed. I'm being poured out. It's a choice. That's, that's the difference. There's a difference in just being killed and deciding, no, this is, I'm, willingly letting myself be poured out for the betterment of the world so that all of the nations might come and find the bread of life, which is Jesus. Um, The Christian life is not meant to be, I lived and then I died. We are to be poured out, to pour ourselves out for other people. Um, Communion is a very powerful thing. It's something that, that should be done regularly. It's something that should be thought about. Um, it's, it's something that two people that need to be reconciled can get together and do and, and be reminded of what Jesus did for them. It's something that reminds us that when we see... Um, it's, it's Sunday, by the way, and so um, on Sunday there's a lot of, of homeless people out on the streets panhandling, and, and how do you look at them? How do you look at them? Do you, do you look at them as, as a nuisance? I mean, you were them to God. You were the, the poor, homeless, weak, the, the person who couldn't feed himself, who couldn't find his own way out. What if God looked at you the way you look at other people? He doesn't. And he's asking you to look at others the way he looks at you. Um, this season, we're going to be reading uh, this book together. It's called Generous Justice by Timothy Keller. It's uh, um, we're going to all come together as house churches and we're going we're to try to study the same thing and get on the same page because I think too many of us have become the fat cows and we keep eating. And it's about time for some of us to pour ourselves out for the world around us. Um, it's about time that some of us start serving and giving and loving and, and exercising justice and peace and mercy to the city around us that desperately needs it. Um, and so I urge you, please get involved in a house church if you can. Um, there's a lot of people here this morning. I'm not sure that we could fit all of you in somebody's house, but who knows? We're going to try. Um, 
And, and so if you want to know more about um, the house churches, please visit the website and find the one near you and, and go check it out. Um, and uh, we're going to take communion now. Um, this is something, again, that we do every single week because we constantly need to be reminded that communion is the thing. The, the, the Eucharist, the good gift, is the thing that can heal our marriages, it can heal our relationships, our families. It can uh, set captives free. It can, it can rehabilitate the, uh, the prisoner. And uh, it can do a lot more than we think. The broken body of Christ and the spilled blood of Christ to cover the sins of all of us. And that's what we need to remember and take away this morning. So um, our communion servers are going to go ahead and, uh, and uh, get ready. And so um, the way this works is we take a few minutes and we talk to God and, and we spend some time in confession. If you need to confess to one of your brothers and sisters in this room, um, that's one of the great things is that we're all, I believe in the priesthood of the saints, we are all the priests of God. And each and every one of us can hear confessions and someone can tell us what they've done and the ways that they have failed God and sinned against him and we can look at each other and we can say, you're forgiven. You are forgiven in the name of Jesus because of what he has done. You are forgiven. It's a, it's a very important thing to do. Um, if you need prayer, right through these doors, there's a room on the left, it's our prayer room, and you are welcome to uh, um, find an elder back there and, and a house church leader back there. Um, there are people there to pray with you. Um, so take some time, and then, and then whenever you're ready, find um, whichever communion station is closest to you. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the glass, and eat it. And we take it down inside of us, and it's nothing mysterious, nothing mystical happens. It's just us asking God, take the gospel, please, down into my heart. Let it touch the places where I have yet to let it touch and change me. Make me more like you. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for what you're doing in the lives of the people around us. Make us more like you every single day. Cleanse us. Make our lives holy. Give us the eyes that you have that see people in a completely different way because we have a really hard time looking at people the way you look at us. Help us to understand what a body broken and blood poured out, a life poured out for other people can really do and the joy and the fulfillment that it can really bring. We love you, God. In your name, amen. So take some time and talk to Jesus.